Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thank you, as always, off the top to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast in a financial capacity. Uh, as little as $1 a month really helps towards all the costs uh, of producing the show. And you get extended episodes each and every week and other goodies as well. We'll be live uh, in a couple of weeks with uh, Science Shambles with Robin and Helen Chersky at the National Maritime Museum and then with Robin and Josie in April 19 at the National Maritime Museum as well for Book Shambles Live. Make sure you get tickets for those. And Sea Shambles coming up May 17 at the Royal Albert Hall. Our guest on today's episode is the host of All in the Mind on the BBC, Claudia Hammond. We had her as a guest on the podcast many years ago now. So it's great to have her back in the studio talking about her new book, The Art of Rest. So let's go to that now. Here is Robin and Claudia. Hello, welcome to Josie Robin's book, Shambles. Uh, Josie is still ill. Now, some of you will be worried about hearing that, thinking that she was ill last week. But what I should tell you is we record actually a few of these on the same day. So it's still the same day of her being ill. So uh, you do not need to send the flowers of any kind. I mean, I'm sure she, she might not like them because the pollen might, you know, make her start being sick again. So don't do that. Anyway, I'm joined by Claudia Hammond, who has been on the show before with her fantastic diary last time, her reading diary from about the age of 11 to... In fact, I must ask... I've forgotten that. You must have uh, read Little Women. Yeah. I love Little Women. I wanted to be Joe March, obviously, because everyone wants to be Joe March. And have you seen the film yet? Yes. Did you like it? I loved it. I loved it. I know lots of people didn't like the jumping about in time. Have you seen it? See, I love jumping about I liked in time, that. but I, was I think fine that's with that. because I'm not. Uh, I, I don't know the book very well. Some of the people who love the book and go, "Why is it not the book?" Which is what I have with something like High Rise, JG Ballard's High Rise. I like Ben Wheatley's work, but I didn't like that film, and I think it's because I'm very familiar with the book, so I've made the film in my head. So I didn't need someone else to to make it. Yeah, there were a few things where some of the men are too good looking. You right. know, they're supposed to she's supposed to be kind of settling, and she's settling for this rather gorgeous, very very good looking school teacher, and that's not supposed to be the idea. But Give that's the general the rule of films, isn't it? It's, it like, is. it's like when you go, oh, it's about this plain woman played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and she meets this very plain man played by Brad Pitt. And they're both very plain because one of them's got glasses. You know that whole thing where you go, yeah, the the rules of Hollywood. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. Cause I I, I thought I thought it was great, and I rewatched Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, which I... Oh, I like that. That's really good. See, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, it's all right. Because I'm a huge fan of Greta Gerwig. I think she is, uh, as a writer and as an actor, is... Have you seen Frances Ha? Yes. Right. That's proper screwball acting, isn't it? That's like... And that's proper loneliness in New York type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And 21st century Lucille Ball kind of thing going on there. And so I was a bit like, oh, well, it was all right, but it wasn't. And then I watched it again last night. It's good, isn't it? Very good. So that's film roundup done. Now, uh, you haven't got your book diary today, so we're not going to be able to find out what your actual marks were for Little Women when you were 12 years old or 11 years old. But we're going to talk about Art of Rest, which uh, is your latest book. Uh, it came out a couple of months ago, three months ago. 
And it is, that's what it's about. It's about what we do to try and get rid of the enormous burden of uh, being human and active. Yeah, it's about how we need to start taking rest more seriously. People have started to take sleep more seriously. There's lots of books now on why we need to value sleep, why it matters for our physical health and our mental health. But I think we need to start taking rest seriously as well. And by rest, I mean something when you're awake. Not having a nap, that is not counting in my book. I mean when you're awake, and but doing something you find restful. But are we caught in a world where we're actually, during what is rest period, we're actually doing nothing... But we're still doing, as in, I think of social media being a good example, which is technically rest. It's not really active, and yet it is active because you're fighting with so many different people about different things and you're getting upset by so many different news. So time that is officially downtime is still this kind of, it is horribly emotionally active. That's right. And I think the thing with that is that it's interesting that we did this massive survey that was on Radio 4 and on the World Service, and it was a collaboration with Welcome. And these psychologists from Durham University uh, devised this questionnaire. And 18,000 people from around the world responded. And one of the things we asked them was which activities they found most restful. And even when people had a free text box to put anything, social media came really low and anything to do with whatever phrase they use, going online, the internet, whatever, emailing, all came out low. So I think people know that they don't find that restful. So they don't compare that with other restful activities, but they do it in their downtime. And it feels a bit like work. Yeah, I mean, well, some people get benefits from social media. You know, some people are finding the the only people in the world who feel the same way about something as they do. And if people have been feeling really isolated and and lonely, particularly about an issue with themselves and their identity, they can find the people on their side who know how it feels to be them somewhere online. So there can be real, really supportive elements of it. So I'm I'm not against all social media at all. But I think it's not restful. So you don't want to fill all your rest time doing it. And I think the trouble is now, the temptation is, if you're on a train, you used to stare out the window, but now you think, oh, well, I'll just I'll just um, quickly catch up on social media mm. or catch up on my emails. And that all feels like work again. And I think there's lots of things we do now in our supposed leisure time that feel a bit like work. So even if you're going to arrange something fun, like going out with a group of friends, first you're going to message them all in some way, or email them, find a date they can all do. Then you're going to book something to find somewhere they can go. And the chance are you go online and you fill in a form yourself for that so companies have quite cleverly outsourced quite a lot of their admin to us so you used to phone up and book something and they do all that and now you do it all online and that's great and, and easy and in one way but on the other hand that feels a bit like setting up a meeting mm. and booking a meeting room all of that feels a bit like work so there's all this admin that we're now doing online which is in our leisure time making those boundaries between work and leisure merge again and I think that makes us feel less rested because actually we get more spare time than people got in the 1950s so if you look at time use diaries we've actually got more spare time now it's not that we're busier than ever but we feel like we're busier than ever well there is also a problem with um the sense of achievement at the end of the day, which you can be, because of the way of being attached to these things, you can be incredibly busy and yet fail to do anything. If I, you know, at the end of a week, you go, what did I do this week? It's not like you go, oh, I mended my seed drill. You, what you do is you did have to send those emails and then you went to go and do a bit of writing, but then there was another email to deal with and then there was that kind of, that story that you were a little bit annoyed about some of the ways that people were writing about Philip Schofield. So you briefly got involved in an argument which got misconstrued and then you realised there was another email to check. And then someone said, have you answered that email? And you went, to go and answer that email but as you went to work you know it was you know and so that none of it has a sense of achievement 
it has a sense of managing to roughly remain in the same place as you were in the morning. Yeah, and lots of it was work. I mean, lots of that, not the getting involved in the social media arguments, obviously, is not necessarily could be defined as work. But the rest of that is you do have to answer those emails. Mm. They are things that you're arranging. They're things you're doing. But they So they're work and admin, and admin doesn't feel very satisfying. It doesn't feel like you've achieved things, even though those were things you needed to do. But that won't feel at all restful. So then you'll feel less rested by the end of the day. Well, in the early part of the book, you talk a little bit about mindfulness with, I, I would say, a level of scepticism, which is, uh, and I'd, when I read your book, I just started reading Ronald Purser's book, I think it's Ronald Purser, Mindfulness, uh, which, again, questions, mindfulness seems to have, uh, because there's a lot of books, there's a lot of forms of, of, of colouring that can be done now, um, and some people are quite antagonistic towards it, and some people see it as... Uh, kind of passing the buck into what might be bigger issues of the way society is? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with it if that's the thing that people find works for them. What I think is that it's not a panacea. It's not the case that this will sort out everything. You know, having, having rolling out mindfulness in schools will not sort out everything that, say, uh, teenagers are finding difficult to struggle with in, in modern life. It will not sort out all those things. But some people may find it's really, really beneficial. But I think the evidence isn't there yet that it's good for everybody and that every some people find it really, really hard and really frustrating and then they feel guilty because they can't do it and then they feel worse. Other people find it's amazing and find that that is the way to still their mind and that's fair enough and you can see you know there's some quite good studies where you can see you know differences in brain activity within say two weeks of practicing every day and the one thing I think is good about it is it forces people to stop and Mm. rest in a way and so I think we could take take the lessons from that but maybe rest in a different way if you find that's not restful for you but you know some people do swear about it swear by it and that's fine and swear about it and they swear about it if they want to they swear about it if they're annoyed with it that's true. But I think it's not it's not the answer to everything. It's really not. So you uh spoiler alert reading. Number into, one. Number one. It's and, handy when you've written uh, a book about it, isn't it? Yeah. So that how much does that play in your because with something like All in the Mind Every single week you will have a stack of books where you have different guests on or you are suddenly going, hang on, it's a long time ago since I studied that at university. I need to revise on that. How do you manage to make the division between... Or is there, because I find with some of the things, like for Infinite Monkey Cage, quite often I find it a lot of fun. I, it's still the fun of reading, even though I have to you know, have my um, highlighter out to make sure that I understand more about quantum mechanics. Yeah, I think it's still the fun of reading, even reading stuff for work. And, I mean, it means I may have to read it by a deadline and I may have to read it faster and relish bits of it less than I might have done if I was able to you know, read it at my own pace. And so I might be going very fast through it or looking for certain bits that are going to be particularly relevant to what I'm going to talk about with them. But um, I, still think it, I still think it's fun and absorbing. And then I think if you get to, if part of a job, is you know being paid to read some books how fantastic is that because you know that's what that's what many people are doing uh for nothing for their leisure time you know and for finding restful you know was the thing that came number one and here i am you know allowed to do that and i think the moment you're starting to read something you're absorbed in it anyway and then it's so interesting that it doesn't it doesn't feel like work at that point and i think if i i was you know thinking this morning about the things i've read recently and I've got them in the list and some of them are work things and some of them are not work things but they in terms of my enjoyment of them it doesn't it doesn't really matter they all merge 
They merge into one. Let's have one of your work things then. So a work thing I read recently was uh, Jen Gunter's Vagina Bible. Have you read it? No, I haven't. We have discussed this in the office a lot. I've noticed there's quite a few of them in the office as there's well. There's a lot yeah, of copies yeah, yeah. of it in the office, well-thumbed, marked, marked and underlined. Will you be replacing it with it every way, time you stay in a hotel all, with all the, the way through. That's right. Them that's, <laughs> that's right. Just pop it in the drawer there for people to have. It is amazing because uh, Jen Gunter is amazing. And now she's someone who's brilliant at taking people on on Twitter and social media. And, and arguing for, for science and what's right and for evidence and against some of the nonsense that there is. But she, um, it's, it's incredible. It's a, very, it's a very fat book and it's, it's just absolutely gripping even when, uh, you know, I, I present a health show on the World Service and I have done loads and loads of things about women's health over the years. So I already thought I knew everything. And there are so many fascinating things in this book. There's good phrases like vestibule. There's good parts of the anatomy of words people might not know. Um, but just loads of common sense as well. So uh, and uh, so common the, sense the, based on science, to be fair. Yeah. So the vagina bible. What's the, the the main kind of aim of it then? So I think the aim is for uh, women, but men could read it too, to become familiar with um, what the evidence does and doesn't say uh, uh, about their bodies and how not to do things like uh, people are, you know, trying to. Um, do you mind if I'm quite graphic here? You'd be as graphic oh, as you okay. want. Okay. I'm just checking. That's allowed on this. Um, so people, for example. Uh, burning themselves with hair dryers because they've got this sort of idea that they should be sort of clean, in order to be clean, that they should be completely dry all the time and that moisture is a bad thing. And that's not the idea. Right. And so she so she tells, and, and all the things and douches that people use and lots of the things that people get, that women get marketed to, suggesting that somehow they're dirty and not right and not good enough if if they haven't done these things, which usually involves, funny enough, paying for products. And she's very, very good at that. And she's very, very good at saying, you know, everybody's different and there's all sorts of variations of normal and talking about things people worried about and so on. So she's amazing. So that book is amazing and just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. And I remember very well reading that one for work and it was a beautiful, hot, sunny day and I, I lay in the garden reading it the whole day and I remember thinking, I can't believe this is work, this is fantastic. So good, so good. And what she, has she written anything before? Is this a... I don't know. She's done, you know, loads of um, loads of blogs and online stuff and media stuff before, but I don't know. So does this? It, it also, I presume, this has been attached from. Did she write quite a lot about um, Gloop or Goop? Goop. Or whatever? Goop. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She's written a lot about Goop. Yes, and she has uh, talked a lot about uh, those eggs and uh, some nonsense that gets talked about jade eggs being good for you. Yeah. So she's she's been very good at taking taking on things that aren't based on evidence. She's absolutely evidence based with what she says. Because there was, I'm trying to think, there was a, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago, which was all just photographs of of basically male genitalia. And okay. That, that that was it, and it was, uh, and then the person whose genitals was writing about them, and you kind of go through the book, and uh, the the variety is it's a very very broad variety. Yeah, absolutely. And she's just done the same thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about a thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. 
I wanted to talk as well as as we, we talk more about the art. Of, well, we talked about the art for us. Everyone's gone. Oh, you think we've done already, that? We've done yeah, that. we've yeah. done that. Haven't we? Yeah. Um, I was going through my uh, books this morning for. So I'm always fascinated in the kind of change of uh, our understanding of psychology and and the way that we talk about. It. Like I picked up this 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 book, which I, I bought somewhere at a charity shop in Sheffield. Treadgold's textbook of mental deficiency. Deficiency. That's not very nice, is it? And this is. And again, this is just the language of the time, and I think this is about 1956. Uh, oh, the original, the first edition was 1908. Uh, this is the tenth edition, 1963. Uh, to all those persons of sound mind who are interested in the welfare of their less fortunate fellow creatures, that is the dedication. Aww, and, creatures. Uh, and it's just, I, I find that bit where, I and mean, you must have dealt with that quite a lot. I mean, even in the time from when you actually, you know, finish your degree to now that you know in, in the last 20 years there have been quite large changes haven't there in terms of our first of all what is diagnosed as being considered to be you know if we use their term mental deficiency or something that is and which is no that's just part of being human oh yeah definitely and definitely the language has changed and the way things are considered has, has definitely changed and so and one of the big things that's changed of course is people being happy to talk about and talk much more openly about their own mental health problems which is great and so when I first started report as a reporter on All in the Mind it was probably about 1997 or something like that and I used to routinely ask everybody um, whether they minded if we use their name or not. Now I would never even use that phrase, do you mind if we use your name? Because some people would be offended by that and say, why are you suggesting I should mind about using my name yeah. to talk about my mental health problems? So now I would say to people, how do you want us to refer to you? What name do you want to go by? Um, um, which could this mean, do you want your first name and your surname? And the biggest difference I have noticed is that the number of people who... Um, who want to change their names is so small now. So it used to be quite common and now it's really rare. And now if it does happen, it's usually because there's some... Uh, some legal issue with someone else and some court case coming up or something like that. Usually somebody has done something to them. So um, and they need to change their names for that reason. But that's that's so unusual now. So what that is the biggest change is that what people are happy to talk about. And then there's been all sorts of changes and arguments about, you know, the language. And um, I don't tend myself to say schizophrenia now. I would tend to talk about psychosis. I talk, tend to talk about people with depression um, and I would never say and I, I never did I would never say they're mentally ill or or mental patients for example whereas that but that used to be absolutely routine mm. mental patients and that used to be one of the biggest things people used to email about saying could I get other parts of the BBC to stop saying things like mental patients and I, I did my best and and sometimes that worked but and often people hadn't thought about why that was or mental hospitals that's another one the phrase mental hospital is not a, not a phrase but that's part now. of the problem isn't it which is that Sometimes people, uh, the, the language has not been given the alternative. So you find yourself in the middle of a. I, I was I was worried uh, the other day. Just did, and this is I think there's two things. I think some you have people who just go, well, don't change anything, and blah blah blah. And there's that kind of very reactionary, traditionalist, uh, you know, rather boorish approach. And then I think there's the other approach where sometimes people decide to go absolutely silent because they're so worried that they're going to. And getting that balance, I, I was doing a um, an event at Transport for All, which is. Uh, to make sure people with disabilities have full access to uh, you know uh, public transport, and of course that may well be disabilities that are physical. It may well actually be you know other things that they're they're kind of dealing with. Um, and you know th the guy who's in charge said, "Oh, I'm just going to send you a thing, just so you know. These are the current terms," and it was very useful 
It was still terrifying. But even thought... then, you'll have, you'll have um, different arguments about why. So some people will say you should say disabled because people are disabled by society, stopping yeah. them do things, and that's the social model of disability. Other people will say that that's labelling people by yeah. saying disabled people and that you should say people with disabilities in order to not, not label them. So And even uh, people with disabilities or disabled people, whichever people prefer to say, will disagree on you know which to say. See, I, I, so understand, I understand that the people with disabilities, I totally understand because it stops it being what's someone is and becomes part of someone's thing uh, story and yeah. I think that's uh, uh, and I found that but yeah there was nothing that, but then it was interesting because having having read this thing uh, and then actually sitting in, in and watching the, the first part of the meeting lots of the terms that I would like no, that they're out yeah, and, going, lots, oh, and some people now oh, do... someone said that. Yeah. Oh, oh. Some but people now do object to the I, phrase I, with disabilities as and well. And I don't yeah. see it as being a huge... You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem it's, it's for us to deal with, not a problem for us to fight against. If you see what I mean, we just go, right, OK, let's, let's work out what is... Because I, I know things like... Uh, I mean, schizophrenia, which you mentioned before, is very... I, I read Nathan Filer's book, The Heartland. I don't know if you... Yeah, you know. oh, it's really good. Yeah, yeah and it, well, it's, yeah. I should say it's now changed uh, to... Uh, I think now called... This book will really change your mind about mental health. It's had one of those, right... Has it got a new title? Yeah, yeah. I think Faber and Faber found that the, the Heartland uh, meant that people... You know you know the way that people like to know... It does look what, quite like a novel What is as well? the book? Um, perhaps because Nathan had had written his his excellent novel Shock of the Fool as well but that was a very interesting thing to me again which is finding out how many areas of kind of mental health there's an umbrella term which with greater uh, inspection and dissection you kind of go oh actually this is many things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even something like something like depression. I think we will work out in the end that depression is loads and loads of different conditions, that it's loads and loads of different things and that it will be caused by completely different things for different people. And that because it's we see it as one symptom and so it gets referred to as one thing and it just isn't one thing at all and it's not going to respond in the same you know to the same uh, treatments or interventions for everybody either. It's going to be very different and I think in the end we will we will work that out. But I think the whole debate about labeling is so interesting as well because um, uh, there is a big move again by many against diagnosis at all and against using using those any of the terms um, uh, you know even just not not even offensive terms just any any terms at all and saying what you should do is just describe people's symptoms just describe what it is they are experiencing what it is they're feeling and then try and look after those symptoms for them or try to work out how you can help them with those um, but when I did I did a series called D for Diagnosis on, on Radio 4 recently and, um, and that's it's still around on iPlayer and what was really striking in that was, as well as the people who feel very strongly against diagnosis and against labelling, there are also many people who find it a massive relief to be given a name for what mm. they're experiencing. And I, I interviewed so many people who will say it was just such a relief to have a diagnosis. And so I think we need to be careful about throwing them all out. It's true that it can label people, but people it gives people an explanation for their friends and their family for why they've been behaving in what might look like a difficult way to their friends and family to say, well, actually... I wasn't well. Actually, this is what's happening for me. It is not my fault. And what I deserve is your understanding and empathy. And this is what it is. But then there's the problem I also interviewed for the same series, a woman whose diagnosis was changed three times over 20 years. And she built an identity. The uh, the Mm -hmm. first time, I think it was bipolar disorder, she was given as the diagnosis. She then started going to a bipolar support group. She wrote a book all about her experiences of having bipolar disorder. Um, It became very much her identity. Seven or eight years later, she went along for a routine appointment, just a sort of review of her medication. 
and only to be told, oh, I don't think that's what you've got at all. And then she was given a completely different diagnosis. And she said that that was really difficult. She felt, should she go back to the support group because she was now sort of fraudulent for being there? And these have been the people who'd supported her all that time. And uh, and she felt that, you know, she didn't have, have a right to have written this book, whereas she wrote it all about the things. She definitely was experiencing all those things. Mm. It's just whether it was called that or not. And then it happened again. And then about something like eight years later, her diagnosis was changed again. And she ended up with three diagnoses across the 20 years. Partly because diagnoses aren't specific enough. And so uh, depending on which symptoms you, you a clinician decides to put more emphasis on, then they will come up with different diagnoses. What she was experiencing undoubtedly was distressing symptoms. See, that's the, to me, one of the interesting lines is I, I know a few people who sometimes even in, in middle age or late middle age have been diagnosed with, with some form of Asperger's. And that seems to be the one where I've I've read the most in terms of from from people I've actually known, which was like this relief of going right on the other side of it with ADHD, where I hear people go, well, hang on a minute, is this is this actually something which we want to class as as as, as an illness, or is this actually in some people it's it's a it's a character trait? If you see what I mean? I mean that yeah. that to me seems to be one of the most difficult things. When you say distressing, I think once you get to distressing and a level of continuous distress, not the distress that, you know, everyone has different levels of distress, but that bit where it is a continuous battle yeah. with distress. Yeah, exactly. It's like with something like obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, it's not, it's not a disorder until it starts interfering with people's lives. Mm. If If you just, you know, you count the lines on the pavement sometimes but you're fine about that, then it, it doesn't matter if it doesn't impact on your life. If it gets to the stage where you've got to count every single line and every single line in every single room, which means it takes you an hour to get out of the house, then that starts to impact on what you're what you're trying to do. And so and so that's where clinical psychologists have a long time for a long time will define not define things as a uh, you know a condition that needs or would benefit from any intervention unless it's affecting people's lives. So it has to be, if you like, causing continuous distress. Otherwise, it's just human variation, and that's fine. You know, some people are different, and so it's not the case that we need to try to make it so that everybody is equally sociable. Mm. If some people don't want to be sociable and find that very tiring and want to spend lots of time on their own, then fine. They no one should try to intervene to stop that. Uh, this is another little book that I rather like. Uh, I think this is from the 1930s, as far as I remember, from the Oxford University Press. It's just the title, Psychoanalysis for Normal People. That's very good. Yes, for that's by uh, Geraldine Costa. And then it's a very kind of, you know, uh, uh, after that, it's uh, uh, the, uh, Victorian parents who wish to prolong at almost any cost their happy present, the temptation to refuse the difficult step of renunciation. Oh, it's just, it's got a whole thing about why one of the children will be trained, uh, um, one of the daughters, never to marry. Uh, so uh, trained from infancy to believe that taking care of father and mother was the highest duty, one means of repaying a parent self-sacrifice, and then it goes on the the problems of home son, home daughter, and the applications of that and how ultimately that will stop them from being normal people. So it's a big book of people who become not normal people. See, normal and abnormal, that's a phrase that's gone away. So when I was at university, you know, we had textbooks called abnormal psychology. Oh, I've got loads of those. Contemporary textbooks uh, called abnormal. Yes, yes, exactly, called abnormal psychology. And now that, you know, normal would be a word that people would avoid. And people would say with, uh, you know, things like Asperger's, would talk about um, neurotypical people instead and neuroatypical people. Um, but in the end, you know, in 15 years' time, everyone will decide that that's not right either and that atypical has become the word for abnormal and that that's yeah. now offensive, I predict. But 
That's, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's a debate that goes on the whole time, but that whole, th- you know, the debate of language. It does versus, matter. It does I matter. I think it does matter. But it does matter. The, and if you look at the old, yeah, exactly. Is a, is if you a, need some pragmatism and you need not to persecute people if they get it wrong. Um, but if, uh, you know, the phrase mentally deficient or mental person has been yeah. used offensively so many times that, or spastic, for example, that was a medical yeah. term, but that's been used offensively so many times that that becomes an offensive phrase. So, yeah. Not one to use. Well, that's. I think the trouble is the distance that can be created between um, now, especially with the way that a lot of fast media works, that intention is entirely removed from that. Yeah, and you don't want to um, make it so that people are then afraid of discussing those subjects. Yeah. That you're picking your words so carefully that you can't really have a, a meaningful conversation with people about what they think. I think, yeah, generally most media is not made for talking about anything. It's best left. Wait till you see someone or you're in the right environment. You don't need to tweet that now. Leave it for a bit. That's my general... Uh... It's true. There is the, if you haven't got anything nice to say, don't say anything. Also, I think there is, you can often see a very deliberate use of uh, incendiary words where then the person immediately goes, oh, I can't believe it, everyone's offended. And you go, you went out there deliberately to offend and annoy and now you've decided to use that as your free speech stallion. But you can just, you see, see, it's almost like I live in a different Twitter world from other people because everyone will talk about how horrible and how horrible everyone is to everyone all the time. If you just follow lots of nice, interesting people. Oh, most of mine's lovely. Then they're really nice. Yeah. No, no, I don't. Also, I don't have my password anymore, so that makes it a lot easier. Now, uh, the next book that I've got just for you is uh, has an advert for fries for good chocolate at the beginning of it, which I like. Um, this is that a cheers, book. Cheers, people. Up. Uh, do you know about this book? It's called Meet Yourself As You Really Are by Prince Leopold Lowenstein and William Gahardy, right? Now, this is a fascinating book. It's called Psychoactory, but it's not. Someone rebound the book and then has written, uh, bought March 22nd, 1943, rebound July 30th, 1952. Psychoactory is the name which I invented for printing on the back cover backing, which carefully spelt and clearly printed I gave to the binder. He, however, decided in his wisdom that in a nonsensical name had to be used, his nonsense was infinitely superior to mine, which sympathetically understand but do not spare. Thus he perpetuated the etymological monstrosity, psychiatry. Psychiatry cannot... uh, I don't even know what's going on right with this book. So someone has written this long piece about why they had to have it rebound. Did you find that in a bookshop? Yeah. Why they had to then rename it uh, and they go, psychiatry may possibly mean the judging of fit from nature. But surely that is not it. Anyway, right. So this is this book is basically a series of questions that will then tell you about yourself. So questions such, uh, does the thought of bills uh, much overdue worry you? Does unpunctuality in people annoy you? Do you dislike the sight of disorder positively? Uh, do you like the sight of systematically or symmetrically arranged objects? Do you read in the bathroom? So you then answer all of these things and then it will tell you, according to river name very often, who you really are. And who are you? Have you done and, it? No, I've not done it all yet. But uh, for 41, the answer, for instance, you must know that there is no greater cruelty in the world than that of an indifferent woman to a man who loves her. She seems to have no kindness for you, no compassion, only a strange, insane irritability. And as you know, there is no greater mental mental Aww. torture than that of a sensitive and cultivated man infatuated by a stupid, shallow woman. So that's the kind of thing that's in the book. Maybe she just doesn't like him. I know. I think it may be that. Do you think so? I think so? that could be the issue. But it's just this really fascinating... And the person who obviously read it and had it rebound as psychiatry, I don't know what they... He never actually says the word he wanted, though. Fizz-charactery. 
Oh, is it fizz charactery? It's fizz charactery. Oh, so it should be psy charactery, and he's called it fizz charactery. So it should be psychiatry. No, I think it's but meant... But he's put no, character no, no. in it. I think it is meant to be psy charactery. Oh, have, what, have that was the what the book was. I think... No, but it's not what it's called. Oh, then he's written psych... <gasps> the printer so, got it... The binder got it wrong. He's You're right. fizz charactery. He wanted it to be called psy charactery. It is psy charactery. Yes. The actual book called Meet Yourself, is she? You? Oh, I see. The printer then decided to change the name to his superior term. So the printer then changed it to Fizz Charactery. Yeah. Naughty printer. Yeah, it's... Uh, but it has a rich and strange history. Good God. Fancy going to the trouble of rebinding books. Yeah, maybe, and maybe giving them your thing. own title. Maybe it was a thing. Maybe well, it's the kind it. of thing that anyone suffering from Psy Charactery would probably do. What is Psy Charactery? What would that be? Psy- I think it's the psych. Well, this is the psychology of your character, isn't it? Because there's always personality stuff. is an awfully clumsy kind of. Uh... Yeah, it's the kind of thing. I mean, you could do a podcast called that. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's that's the Jordan Peterson of its day. I think that uh, <laughs> that book is kind of, uh, and it's um, yes, yeah, very odd. Um, so, I mean, your opinion on the psychology of lobsters? Um, what an intriguing. Have you read any of that book? Which one? Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson's book. Twelve. Yeah, what's it? Twelve Lobster yeah. Ways of Living. Yeah. Yes. You read it? Yes. And how did you find it? I gave it away. Did you? Yeah, I oh, did. Oh, maybe I bought your copy. Was it in the, was the Oxfam down near no, where you No, I live? gave it to somebody I know who really desperately wanted to read it, a man I knew, and I said, well, you you can have mine rather than buy one, um, but um, just beware to look at the evidence for some of these things. See, that's what I... I haven't read it all. I only read the first 50 pages, and what I was kind of intrigued by was how quickly the lobsters came into it. Um, because I hadn't thought the lobsters were... I thought that was the kind of joke that people made. Oh, this guy's written a book and it's basically about we should maybe think of ourselves as lobsters a bit more often, which does seem to be the point in the first 50 pages, but I might be wrong about that. Because... And so is... I mean, some of the your... advice is actually fine, you know. Which would be nice. So... It would be nice if everyone was nice to each other. That's fine. But isn't it a weird thing that uh, that book has actually been a, a, a rallying call for people to be more unpleasant to each other? That's what is odd. Yeah, that's the, 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 the strange thing is that it came, it seems the popularity was partly spurred by his, his own, you know, failure to, or, or refusal, I suppose, to, to empathise with, with people in, in different situations. Um, and then... So it's a book that seems to be both come from anger, but which is meant to be about... Yeah, and it's odd because the rules themselves, you know, some of those rules for life are fine things, you know. They're fine ideas. They're, they're not, not bad ideas. they're not new ones, are they? It's not like you they're go, bloody hell, Jordan, it's not you come up with a great one there. We haven't thought of that before to be nice to people. Yeah, that that's quite a good idea. And to listen to what other people have to say seems like a good idea. So I think it's more everything else that goes along with it and some of the politics that go along with it. So what else have you been reading? You have a list in front of you. So I do. I, I thought of some other things, yes. Um, um, Maggie Van Eyck, Remember This When You're Sad. Do you know this? Oh, I don't know this This was another book I read for work. Um, and she's really interesting. She's in her uh, 20s, uh, I guess. And, uh, and it's a book that's been very popular uh, with young people with mental health issues. And uh, it's all about her own issues um, and uh, real difficulties with, with self-harm. And... 
one of the ways she coped was by writing lots of lists of things. And it's kind of a book that's about her lists and about how she coped. It's very, very easy read and really nice. She's so, so engaging. So there's lists of... And all these lists helped her feel better. So she kept lists, then she looked at those when she was sad. A bit like some people have a a happy box, you know, that has... Uh, you know, some nice soft socks in it and all the things that might make them feel a bit better and a chocolate and things like that. And so she did things like lists of things that uh, make her feel alive or um, there's different chapters. Remember this when you're lonely and it's the points that she would tell herself about those things. And they're just really nice messages for people who feel they're struggling. And it's just very, very human. Um, And I interviewed her about it. I thought she was great. I thought she was really, really interesting. That listing is an interesting. Anything in terms of trying to create some form of structure, I presume is that is that something that you've seen in the last few years in terms of some of the books that are coming out and some of the kind of attitudes towards treatment and our understanding of being in a society which, in, in one way, should have you know should we should feel more secure than you know a hundred years ago in, in in terms of the possibility of longevity and the possibility of security and all those things but at the same time that the shape of our life seems to be somehow unruly as well yeah and so she's talking a lot about self-care and and you know self-care is a thing that gets sometimes mocked a lot um, and sometimes self-care can be associated with again trying to convince people to buy very expensive wellness products that they don't necessarily need and that in order to care for yourself you don't have to have you know a 50 pound bath bomb Mm. it turns out um but um she's trying to take self-care and self-care is you know very very popular with um with with some young people and she's trying to take it very seriously and i think that the lists are part of that and i think that is a thing that's that has come around more recently of people trying to work out particularly while they're perhaps because mental health services aren't always there when people need them and can't cope with the amount of people who 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 might benefit then there are times where people are waiting and people are very vulnerable during those times and she's trying to say well this is something you can do for yourself in the meantime mm. yes it doesn't make up for having to wait you know months for an appointment but in the meantime this is what might be able to keep you going is to uh, look at these lists and convince yourself of some of these things and they're lists about you know why why you're still worthwhile even when people are feeling they're completely worthless and so many of them are things that would be then tackled in in talking therapy um, but they're things people can do for themselves in the meantime sometimes people are very rude about it and say well that doesn't make up for mental health services it doesn't but if that stops somebody feeling suicidal mm. that day then that's great and, and very worthwhile. So um, I think, but I think it is something that we've seen much more increasingly. And there's loads of blogs where you can go and then read, you know, read about somebody else and how and how they're coping. Um, uh, and there's an amazing one um, with uh, that a guy has uh, created called the Recovery Letters, which is all about they are uh, letters from people who felt suicidal once upon a time. And this is how they feel now. And it's the letter they wish they could have read. And you can just go, there is a book, there's a book, a book of them as well, but you can go online and, and see them. And you can choose the one that might appeal to your particular situation. You can choose the one you identify with. And all the letters are trying to convince people you won't always feel the way you feel on this particular evening, morning, whatever it is. Time will move on. Something will change. And how glad they are. So most of them uh, attempted suicide and uh, how glad they are that um, they didn't complete it and that they're still here. And so it's loads of sort of letters from people who are glad to be alive, but very, very, who are very empathic about people going through that situation now. And I think it's amazing that there are things like that, resources like that for people now to be able to look at. 
because I think some of the kind of like poo-pooing of that where you you know you can still hear people say oh well the previous generations just got on with it and blah blah and then you think about how many memoirs you read in which say the father comes back from a war and is never able to express what he's been yeah, through. Yeah, and is never the same. And then gets drunk and then beats the, the children yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And that's the thing, that that kind of nostalgia for a time in which people had terrible things happen to them and then just got on with exactly. life. Exactly, and people weren't okay. Versus the reality, which yeah. seems to be yeah. so many people who suffered in silence and then when the silence, when they weren't suffering in silence, they were lashing out. Yeah, and people were lashing out or or you get stories of similar to that coming back from war and then they, they die in some accident. Was that an well, you know how much was that an accident and how or how much was it that they were so damaged by what they went through um, that they had the accident because of that or that it was deliberate and and I think oh it annoys me when people sort of say oh everyone young is snowflakes these days and they should just get on with it in our day we all got on with it and we were all fine I think there were loads of people suffering hugely and we just didn't know about it. Oh yeah, I mean, but I, I think, and we do the, know the, from the, way, yeah, the evidence from their is all over the place. Yeah. There's so many memoirs, so many books, so many. Yeah, there was an of, enormous of amount the, of misery. You know, yeah, look at the. And it had to be I mean, do you want do you want to call all those people in? You know, the First World War who who got shell shock and yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, what about the people shot for cowardice? Walk yeah. and suddenly believed that they were blind. And they, you know, you go, look look at those snowflakes. Exactly. Yeah, uh, but then if you say that to somebody, then they'll say, "Oh, well, that's because yeah, but." Um, Young people now haven't got to go through the First World War. They went through something proper that was upsetting, whereas young people now, you know, they've all got it easy. And look at them all with their, you know, smashed avocado and their lattes. But I think that's me. really annoys people. It really it? annoys people. I don't yeah. know why. Avocado's nice. There's always it used to be hummus before that. And that's there was true. Before yes. That. Maybe there's, there's always, always a food so, that is the sort of butt of jokes. The, the I forgot about hummus. And their shipham's paste. At one yeah. point, toast toppers. We yeah. didn't have toast toppers in yeah. our day. Or quiche. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's always a food. There's always I been what the a next food one will be. of weakness. Exactly. Food of the yes. People need to be persecuted if they eat those. Um, and we've got time for one more book. Oh, oh, which one to have? Oh, I know, there's loads. Normal People, Sally Rooney, have you read that? No, I haven't. That is on my uh, shelf, though. Oh, we'll discuss it after you've read it. I don't want to spoil anything. Oh, OK, then. Okay. Then you have another book, then. Then I'll have another book. Um, this is a book. Uh, you may have met this man, Graham Easton, Dr. Graham Easton. No. He is a GP, um, and he wrote. he's written a book called The Appointment, and it's sort of like a day in the life of being a GP, but in... in in real detail, and what's fun is, if you're competitive like me, what you can do is you can mm. you read it, and he talks about each each patient comes in, and they and they tell them their problem, and then you can try and guess what it's going to be. You can try and guess what they've got wrong with them. I mean, he doesn't quite frame it like that, but I see it as a quiz and a challenge. Is it um, a choose your own adventure book? It like is the almost we yes, about and yeah. that's right. And then you try and try and guess what's wrong with them, and see whether you'd have got it right if you were the doctor. Now, sometimes I get it right, and sometimes I don't. Seeing as I'm not a doctor, that's that's probably all right. Um, and what is amazing is though that there's all there's all this. I now feel quite sorry for. He's trying not to moan, but I now feel quite sorry for GPs. Um, and you you see the first sort of seven patients or so, and then you realise it's only eight forty, and you think he's already been through all of that lot before, where the whole of life was there, and you know there'll be something very serious and then something not serious, and then um, then he's off to visit the people in the community who are dying, and it's. Um, it's just absolutely fascinating. And he talks about what the GP is thinking all this time. So he talks about the thought processes. So now some people are using it now to train GPs. But it's quite interesting as a patient to sort of think, oh, well, this is what I actually need to say when I go there. And um, 
some doctors, he doesn't, some doctors are very irritated with people just getting to the door and then saying, oh, and before I go, and then saying the thing they're really worried about, whether it's their mental health problem or something, or an embarrassing physical problem. And uh, some doctors are really stroppy about that and say that people shouldn't do that as they leave. And some even have signs up saying each appointment is for one problem, not for two. Don't tell us your second one. When actually, the second one is more important. Oh, man, that's crazy. Mm. Um, and because um, that's what that's part of the narrative that feeds into. Because I know you know there's there's great GPs and there's also somewhere someone goes, oh god, I've got to go and see my GP, and I know I'll get told off, and I go blah blah blah. Which is the fear of embarrassing yourself, yeah. Because it turns out that something that you are genuinely worried about, a lump that you, because you're not trained, you don't know what certain you lumps don't know. mean. Exactly. You don't yeah. know that oh, yeah. it's just a lumpy lump. That's yeah. all it is. Just and it's normal lumpy to be lump. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Um, that that fear of of being looked down. Yeah. On, I, I think it's also one of the reasons that sometimes people, by the time they really do react to it, because it's become such a physically painful thing, yeah. it may well now be very problematic. Exactly. Yeah. And so he's so kind and compassionate towards the towards the patient. And yet, at the same time, you do see the the uh, you know the difficult day is trying to juggle with with these these things of such different importance, but all of real importance to the person who's who's going, and how just going to the doctor at all is quite sort of nerve wracking because you're expected mm-hmm. to sort of you sit there and then suddenly have to explain things. And, yeah. You've already watched your funeral in your head. That's right. Generally. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Because you found that lump, so it must be something yeah, yeah, terrible. Yeah. God, yeah. not many people turned up, did they, either? Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Claudia Hammond. Art of Rest is out now. Uh, and uh, I've read it, and it's very good, and it's useful. And it's uh, it's like all your books. There's a lot of information in there. Are you resting There's more now? Of... No, 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 no. I've got a lot, lot of... You uh, don't rest. Articles. No, I should... I think, well, I've got a book to write, and I've... Uh, and I don't, I don't find rest very easy, but I don't want to. But you read and reading but Kate Todd. Yeah, all, all the things that I do, apart from the travel sometimes and that sense that there is no time, that's that most of what does actually take up all that time is something which, like, oh, that was interesting. I met some interesting people. I saw an interesting thing. Yeah. And then there is a point where you hit the wall and then you go, stop now. That's what I normally wait for. It's much like shoes. It's only when the soles actually come off that I buy that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, very much Nicholas Parsons' no. rules. You need to prescribe yourself some more rest each day. Just a small amount. Well, I will. Thank you very much, Doctor. You've been very useful. Uh, Claudia Hammond's uh, All in the Minds Well, obviously, uh, on Radio 4 and uh, Art of Rest and and the other books as well. They're all they're not all Canongate, though, are they? Uh, no. So Time Warped and Mind Over Money are Canongate. And my first book, Emotional Rollercoaster, was uh, Fourth Estate at HarperCollins. We'll go and look those up. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. Hopefully Josie will be back with us very, very soon. And uh, go to CosmicShambles.com to see various different films. There's the stuff that's uh, coming very soon about European Space Agency and Helen Chersky in a water tank doing stuff and uh, Matt Parker up to all manner of mathematical hijinks there's lots of blog posts as well and uh, go to patreon.com if you'd like to give us some money thank you thanks for listening thanks to Patreon the website for existing and also our supporters on said website patreon.com slash bookshambles check that out check out cosmicshambles.com check out our online shop and all our upcoming events. Back next week with a new episode. Until then, have yourself an excellent week. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.